Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. If I tell you about everything that's coming up today, we won't have time to do it. Let us uh, begin, because all of us will remember as Hurricane Irma attacks the state of Florida after devastating much of the Caribbean, we all remember in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina attacked New Orleans and uh, laid waste to the city. And I'm sure all of us still have mental images of uh, of the city and, and, and what happened. And, you know, we probably know somebody who has some sort of relationship with that uh, terrible hurricane. Uh, with us now from New Orleans is Chuck Perkins. He's the owner of... Um, Tell us the name of the of your of your restaurant, uh, Chuck. Okay, yeah, the name it's actually a performance venue. The name of it is Cafe Istanbul, and it's something that was open five years after um, after Hurricane Katrina. Okay, so you didn't uh, you didn't have the the Cafe Istanbul in two thousand and five. Then I mean, obviously, I'm I'm very good at deductive reasoning. <laughs> in 2005, I was actually working for a pharmaceutical company. I was working in okay. pharmaceutical sales. And uh, and so I guess the hurricane happened, and maybe a couple of years after that, you know, I found myself in the same position. A lot of Americans, like, having to reinvent myself and figuring out, uh, you know, being without a job because my company downsized and trying to figure out, you know, what I was going to do with my life's name. Yeah. I ended up being in, the, being in the club business. Well, congratulations. I understand things are going very well. With your Thank club. You very much. I really yeah. appreciate it. And whenever Canadians make their way to New Orleans, make your way to the Cafe Istanbul and say hello to Chuck Perkins. Chuck, what are your thoughts personally as Irma assaults Florida and after Harvey's huge damage to Houston? What what are you thinking as a as a resident of New Orleans when you look back to two thousand and five? Well, I tell you, I'm thinking there's so much I have as it pertains to these hurricanes. You know the one thing in, in some ways, you know, when this thing happened um, in New Orleans, there were a lot of people, especially like religious people, you know, sometimes they see something like that, and they said, and, and they, you know, there's an easy um, um, conclusion, an easy narrative, and that is, oh, oh, something that those people are doing wrong, and it's the wrath of God, you know, um, um, if you look all along the coast, and along the the eastern seaboard, that there's been hurricanes. Clearly, we have some issues with uh, Chuck's phone line. Uh, can, can you hear me? Can yeah, we can. Now? It's 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 a bit of hit and miss at the moment. Let's try it again, and if it doesn't work, we'll call you back. Okay. Okay. I um. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you fine. Now go ahead, Chuck. Oh, okay. And so the, I guess the, the main thing I thought about that now I, w- I, I hope that people can just put that kind of foolishness to rest. You know, it, it doesn't have anything to, to, to do with God. It's, a, it's, a, it's Mother Nature. It's, um, it's, it, I guess it says something about um, where we are today with global, with global warming. 
and as a as a country, you know, since so much of this country is exposed um, to to the Atlantic Ocean and, and the um, Gulf of Mexico, we got to figure out, you know, how are we gonna what are we gonna do this, how are we gonna have people prepare for this, if we're gonna do something about, uh, um, you know, um, greenhouse gas emissions or something like that. So I'm I'm hoping that now, um, everything that's happened since Katrina. That now people could be clear that, that that something needs to be done, and it's not God doing something to some particular group. Well, talking about that, how much work has been done in New Orleans to safeguard the city from another hurricane assault, which could happen at any time? Is the city far more safe now than it was in two thousand and five? Well, that's a very good question, and um, it depends. You see, um, so. If you look at a hurricane like Katrina, the the big the main thing that happened with Katrina before people always talked about hurricane force winds and whether it was a category four or category five. But then one of the things we saw with Katrina was that you know the the winds that's one thing, but this storm surge is a is something totally different. So New Orleans is a city that has a lot of canals. Um, now unlike places like Venice or uh, uh, Amsterdam, you know you live near these canals and you you know you might not even know they're there, right? And so what what happens is that um, the storm surge in Katrina um, pushed all of this water from the Gulf of Mexico into Lake Pontchartrain, which pushed it into all of these canals, and that's where this massive amount of water came from, and uh, and a, a lot of the canals flooded. And thus the city flooded. Now the city has. If we get another hurricane like Katrina, I think we 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 are a lot better prepared for that kind of hurricane. But here's the thing: we see what happened in Houston um, just uh, what a c- couple weeks now. If a hurricane like that had hit New Orleans, I think it would be over. So we would be really prepared for a hurricane like Katrina, but a hurricane like Harvey would would, would sink us. Or a hurricane like Irma. I mean, with that, with the oh. power that that particular hurricane has. So, how do, how does it feel to live in the? I mean, I I understand. I've never been to New Orleans. I want to go, but uh, but there's such a from, from what I understand, there's such a tremendous sense of uh, of life and loyalty and and just enjoyment of life in in New Orleans. So, there's for most people who are natives of New Orleans, it's leaving there out of fear of a hurricane is probably unthinkable. But when a year like this year happens, there has to be an emotional reaction. There must be a, uh, an emotional response to Harvey and to Irma and then just memories of, uh, of Katrina. There, it must play on people's psyches. Yeah, well, we, well one of the things we, we, we know is that there are some risks living in the, in the Gulf Coast, and some people are prepared to accept those risks. But you know, it seems like in the last couple of years, uh, just like, uh, for, for instance, a couple weeks ago, maybe a couple weeks before Harvey, we just had like a thunderstorm here. And for like four hours, it rained really hard, really fast. And there were some places in the city where they had like four feet of water. You understand? And mm-hmm. so one of, one of the things that we're seeing is that in terms of thunderstorms and hurricanes, that there does seem to be something that's different it's, you know, that they're bigger and more massive and they have the potential to do a lot more damage and to cause a lot more destruction. And I think when, when people, the more we come to that realization, is, and I don't know, man, it, it's really, really, really frightening. But again, not just for folk living in New Orleans, uh, all along the, the, the Gulf Coast, as you see with, with Irma and Harvey and us, it could, it could happen to any of these um, um, 
coastal communities in the, in, in, in the, in the U.S. And it's, it is. Fun. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Chuck Perkins is with me from New Orleans. He's the owner of the Cafe Istanbul. And uh, we're talking about Hurricane Katrina uh, in 2005 as Hurricane Irma assaults the state of Florida. Uh, Chuck, when you when you think back to uh, to 2005, and I understand you finally left the city the day before Katrina struck, what was the mood as as the news became more dire, the predictions became more severe, the concern became greater? What was the mood throughout the city of New Orleans? You know, the the, the mood was was really sort of disbelief. You know, in a in a literal a literal way. You know, there are people watching the news. But then you still don't believe it. Um, one of the things you got to remember is that a year before Hurricane Katrina, there was Hurricane Ivan. And Ivan was supposed to, um, due to New Orleans, um, based on what the, the forecasters were saying, it was supposed to do to New Orleans what Katrina ultimately did, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's still people when Ivan came, they don't believe that. Now, for Hurricane Ivan, my family and I, we evacuated then. I spent maybe about 500 bucks to board up my house, and I get my, 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 all of my, um, my kids. I got two daughters, my wife, my, my mother-in-law, and we head out to Lake Charles, Louisiana, and for um, it's 235 miles, and that took us 18 hours. Wow. So we get 18 hours away from New Orleans. Now um, I just spent five, 600 bucks to board up the place. Now I got to get a hotel for my family. Now we got to eat, <laughs> you know, all of this sort of stuff. Right. And then nothing happens, you see. And and there's still a group of people who never leave. Say, man, I'm not doing all of that. Come on, man. It's a, this is in God's hand. God's not going to let this happen. And then they, they, they're they reassured after that, you see. I told you it was a big waste of time. Now Katrina comes. And to be honest with you, for Katrina, I was – saying, you know what, I'm not going through all of this. I'm going to just stay home. Because I did it last year and nothing happened. And and nothing happened. And here's the other thing. Um, For for, for New Orleans, the last big hurricane that occurred was, I think, I was born a few days days before, was in 1965, Hurricane Betsy. So now we're talking about it's almost like 40 years, you know, 40 years people going through this and nothing ever happens. In fact, I still remember when I was a little boy, eight, nine, if they said a hurricane was coming, we took it so serious. My, I, I can remember my grandfather boarding up the house. We didn't kerosene lamps and water and food. Um, you know, um, 12, 13 years later, I'm in college, and they said a hurricane coming. We were ready to party, you know. Like, yeah, we're going to get some days off from school, get the beer. This is great. We're so, we're so lucky, right? And so by the time Katrina happens, that thing is really going on, and I had said, you know what? I'm not going through all of this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay home. And then, um, I guess, of maybe a day and a half out, we looked at the news, and this monster hurricane was about the size of the Gulf of Mexico. And I think I remember them saying that it had gotten up to 175 miles an hour. And I was like, oh my goodness, I never seen a storm like that. And at the time, I have two little girls. One's about maybe um, ten, the other's five. And I said, you know, I cannot risk my children's life, you know. So then we decided that we would um, evacuate. And still, you know, even though we're evacuating, I got to be honest, and it's like, you know what, it's going to be more the same. We're going we're gonna to evacuate, but we'll be back in about three days. And so it took us, we went to my brother, um, his in-laws lived in Jackson, Mississippi. And at the time, everybody's scrambling to find someplace. 
you know, it's not so easy to call mm-hmm. a hotel or a motel because every, everything's booked, you see. And right. So um, it took us about nine hours to get to Jackson, Mississippi, which is about 180 miles from here. So it's like the whole way is like bumper to bumper traffic. And, and so I ended up um, in Jackson, Mississippi, with tw- in a two-bedroom condo with 26 other people. I'm very grateful that my brother's in-laws allowed us to, to stay there. Other than that, I don't, I'm not sure where we would have stayed. And so anyway, then the hurricane happens, and there are a lot of people all over the city who didn't believe that it, that it would, but it did. And, uh, and, and, and now um, in New Orleans, if you come to New Orleans, because it was such a catastrophic event that people often speak in terms of pre-Katrina or post-Katrina. Yeah. What would you uh, have about two minutes uh, left, Chuck? What would you say to anybody from Florida? What should they prepare themselves for after Irma leaves? Um, I, I, I guess what, they, what they're going to have to prepare themselves for, they're going to have to be patient. They're going to have to understand that if uh, your, your house is damaged and you need like a plumber or a roofer or a construction guy, there's going to be a premium on them. And you might call somebody and they say, yes, I can help you, but you're going to have to get in line. I'll be at your place in four months. They're going to have to know that they're going to be a, a first of all, um, I think in New Orleans and Irma and all of these things, there, there are always so many beautiful people who are there to help. And the one thing I want people to know is that in New Orleans, six, seven, eight years after the storm, there were people from all over this country, all over the world coming to help us rebuild our city. So that's a good thing. But, you know, for contractors and stuff like that, there's some wonderful contractors. But there are also people who you know, are looking to, 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 to rip you off, you know. So you got to be careful about who you give your money to. And, uh, you know, so I, that's, that's the one thing I would say. And, you know, this is one thing I saw with some contractors. Some people start not with bad intentions, but there's so many people calling them who need them, who want to give them money to start on their house, and they don't know when to say no. The next thing you know, they got money from about 15 different people, and they have no idea where to start, so they just leave. So, so they just leave, yeah. really careful with that kind of stuff. Chuck, thank you so much. It's uh, it's an honor to speak with you, and you've painted an incredible picture for us on uh, about Katrina and New Orleans and given us a sense of what lies ahead as far as uh, Irma is concerned and Florida and everybody listening to this program across Canada and the next time you're in New Orleans go see Chuck Perkins at the Cafe Istanbul. Thanks Chuck, all the best to you. Okay my friend thank you very much, good luck. Bye bye. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML I saw a story uh, a, a video mostly earlier this week on the Clarion Project website I look at a lot of news sources, a lot of news sources from different perspectives during the week. And uh, they showed a a video of Dutch Christian school kids who'd been taken to a mosque in Holland and taught how to pray by the local imam. There were boys and the girls were separated. And there was quite a lot of fallout as parents wanted to know know why this was happening, where their kids had gone on the uh, school outing of this kind. And we've also had school kids in Canada have been exposed to Islam as a religion. It was controversial in Toronto a few years ago when boys and girls were separated at a Toronto school where Friday prayers were held for Muslim students. In California, grade 7 students are taught about Sunni Islam as part of the curriculum along with other religions. But one school district I was reading about 
Now, this isn't all on this one side. I've gone now, I've probably by now I've seen 10 or 12 different sites and, and, and visited uh, various news organizations. But uh, there was one school district where the parents objected primarily to the text of a book about religions, about world religions, because they argue Christianity is portrayed in only a negative manner. There was a case in New Jersey where uh, two mothers hired a law firm because at their school, a cartoon, the kids were showing a cartoon which um, depicted uh, the five pillars of Islam, and they felt that their kids were being indoctrinated. So it's the kind of story that requires more time than I can give it today, and we will give it, as I said, more time another day, but it's also the kind of story not to avoid. Uh, Dr. Sudi Jasser joins me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, the founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. He's the author of The Battle for the Soul of Islam, former U.S. Navy lieutenant commander and uh, former president of the Arizona Medical Association, active on social media as well. Sudi, thank you for taking the time. Oh, sure. Thanks. Great to be with you, Roy. What are you, uh, just out of the gate, what are your thoughts about what I just said, the, the stories that are percolating and circulating, uh, parents angry, uh, other parents saying, what are you upset about? Is this a story that that needs fleshing out, or is it is it is it of relatively uh, insignificant um, importance? No, no, it's not insignificant at all. It's, it's another symptom of how dysfunctional we are in dealing with Islam and Muslims. And, you know, I can tell you, if we sort of have lost our bearings as a society. The, the reason my parents came here for religious freedom in America and in the West is is the fact that we have a separation of church, or for us Muslims, mosque and state. I guarantee you none of us Muslims that I know want the state of Syria or Iraq or Iran or Saudi Arabia telling us which version of Islam. So I think similarly in the West, Christians and other non-Muslims are seeing Islam being treated with just even beyond kid gloves because of the political correctness, because of the sense of coddling and infantilizing Muslims, uh, they are presenting an Islam that is somehow benign and allowing things to be done where kids are taught to pray and other things that they'd never tolerate of a majority religion like Christianity or or even other uh, more normative religions like Judaism or, or uh, Hinduism. So at the end of the day, I can tell you that if we're going to understand, we need to have his, the history of Islam taught as we do everything else in world history and other aspects, but it can't be, it needs to simply be historical, not to plunge into an apologetic about the spirituality part, and that needs to be avoided like we do in every other religion, or else we risk uh, sort of uh, glossing over the reality of the connection between radical Islam and the theological parts of political Islam. One of the things I uh, particularly noted was, as I was going through the various news sources about these stories, uh, I noted that the news organizations in the main were regional. There wasn't very much attention paid by major national media organizations, and that's why I asked myself, is it because the organizations felt it was insignificant, or did they feel that it, uh, it was really too... Uh, politically incorrect for them to address. Now, one of the um, uh, one of the stories had to do with the, the New Jersey, where the two mothers were upset about the uh, the cartoon that kids saw about the five pillars of Islam, 
And then they followed up and they hired a law firm to take, uh, to take action against the school board. Uh, a homework assignment followed in which, reading from one account here, in which two mothers said their children had to fill in the blanks of this sentence about the Islamic belief systems. There is no God but blank, and blank is his messenger. So the kids had to fill in the blanks. Now, these, these were not Muslim kids. Yeah, that is, uh, um, I mean, I had friends that were Muslims that attended Catholic schools, and, and they may, you know, undertake such type of teachings about Catholicism, but those are private theological schools. That's not a public school. And there's no benefit to teaching, you know, uh, even I as a Muslim, I don't think Americans will become more tolerant of Islam if they understand some of the core and memorize the core theological teachings. That's not the issue. The issue is understanding the history and, and where Islam is in its history now when it needs to go through reform and enlightenment and who its leadership was and, and how it spread and things like that. That's all part of the history, but the theological practice, uh, these regional stories need to be told. And uh, at some point, I think there will be a threshold in which uh, there is a tipping point in which nationally it will be addressed more. And uh, Charles Jacobs, for example, in Boston covered a, a couple years ago how some mosques in, in Boston were bringing out school teachers and others to show them how to pray and et cetera. So this is happening more than you think, even beyond the cities you mentioned. And uh, I would tell you, Muslims need tough love. If we don't start treating them like we do every other faith and continuing to protect us from ourselves, uh, you're never going to get the reform against the core ideas. The head of the largest Islamic group in Indonesia yesterday, Roy, said that Islam needs to deal with its deep connection between its own teachings and its violence. So if you have the head of the largest Islamic organization uh, separate from the Arab world saying this, uh, and yet in the West our, our school kids are being taught to simply blindly recite and memorize the theological underpinnings, that's, that's crazy. We're, we're completely disconnected from reality. Yeah, one of the accounts that I read suggested that the two women, the two mothers, young, young women, who uh, objected and hired a law firm to uh, to deal with the uh, the school district? They were uh, vilified um, by their by their peers, and and it just seems to me that as I read these stories, one sort of recurring thought was: this is only going to fuel whatever latent anger and frustration is bubbling below the surface with some people. It's going to just fuel that. Um, particularly if parents are not engaged, involved, and asked in the first place. And that's why it's so important that as we cover these stories, you know, Muslims need to be contrite. We need to realize that we have a problem and own up to it. And the problem is, is I hope the left or whoever's driving this realizes that there will be a backlash of frustrations that will end up causing the opposite effect. I've been to large political meetings where They'll demonize all refugees and say refugees are a problem. We shouldn't accept them in. And I'll tell them, listen, I'm with you. We need to have better security. But let's not change who we are as we talk about this. And you're exactly right. We need to talk about these issues because if we don't, it'll end up turning the other uh, uh, side of the coin, which is a blind uh, sort of hatred, if you will, of every other religion that's not the majority. And, and that's not going to help. We see Europe now doing that not only to Muslims, but to Jews and other minority faiths as it tries to grapple with its own identity. So the best way to deal with it now up front is to be truthful, honest, and transparent when we're dealing with Islam rather than blindly apologetic. 
And I want to say one other thing. It's my first chance to speak with you uh, since we appeared on the radio together. Now, you are um, a world-class, world-renowned nuclear cardiologist, but you're also a pretty good talk show host. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, you, I've been at the best training ground was, uh, uh, you know, doing the interviews with you over the last 10 to 15 years. So now... <laughs> I've uh, become a fill-in uh, host here in Phoenix, so thank you. <laughs> this is what he asked me to appear with him on uh, was it, the Patriot radio station. It's called the Patriot in Phoenix, Arizona. I have to tell you, it's much more difficult being the guest than being the host. Well, you were great. You were great. You helped me out in a pinch, and uh, it was good to uh, fill in for Seth Liebson, my friend uh, here in Phoenix, who was gone for the week. So thanks for uh, educating our our citizens here in Arizona about the uh, all the issues in Canada at the time with Omar Khadr and all those other issues. Yeah, exactly. Thank Zudi, thanks so much for the time, always. Anytime. Thanks, Roy. Dr. Zudi Jasser, his book is Battle for the Soul of Islam. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. There was an incredible security breach. Huge security breach. Maybe the biggest of all time, which took place just a couple, well, we became aware of it just a couple of days ago. And uh, the security breach deals with Equifax, one of the world's largest credit rating agencies or credit watch agencies. 134 million accounts were compromised. 134 million people have personal information, God knows where, in the possession of God knows whom. And the purpose, well, it's not going to be the, to the benefit of the person whose information is out there being held by someone. So should Canadians worry uh, what to do if you have an Equifax account or if you're a client? Well, are corporations cutting costs on cybersecurity with hugely negative impact? Daniel Tobak joins us. He's the CEO of Scientelligence Inc. in Toronto. He's one of the premier cyber intelligence experts in this country. Daniel, thank you very much for the time. I did not hear the kind of response, the kind of shock response, at the, I expected it. At the news of 134 million personal accounts being compromised, that would have heard 10 years ago at news of 10 million being compromised. Are we just getting used to it? You know, unfortunately, I think we're getting used to a lot of breaches out there. This is actually, I, I would say, the largest and most serious breach in our history today. Um, I think it hasn't floated yet, and I think most of it has started to float on Friday. So maybe people have not caught wind of it as much. This is the largest breach in our history. The amount of personal data, direct focus personal data that was disclosed, that was stolen, is something we've never seen before. Now, 130, so 134 million pieces of information. What are the odds that, I don't know if we can calculate the odds, what are the chances that a certain person who has had whose information is in that big cache of information, is actually going to be uh, victimized. And I guess part B of that question is, can anyone assume the cache is so big that they'll never get to me? Yeah. Uh, so this breach occurred in the, in the, the U.S. And uh, again, there isn't a, a particular number of how many Canadians, but I would estimate around uh, the 12 to 14 million uh, amount of Canadians. One of the problems is... That's with, half our uh, population. Absolutely. One of the problems with Equifax is every time you do some sort of a transaction, even if you don't sign and agree 
to provide them your information as part of a financial transaction, they still get access to that. That's how they're able to pull credit reports on basically on every single person over the age of 18, right? Um, so the, the fact that people in Canada are going to be affected by this is, is absolute. It's just a matter of time and when. Uh, what are the bad guys going to do with this information? Uh, you know, of course, because this is public, and the reason it needs to be public is to warn everybody we're making it harder for the bad guys to, to leverage this information. So what is the uh, individual now? You're talking about up to 14, maybe 16 million Canadians involved. What do, what do we all, and, and, and people actually sign up with Equifax to watch their credit uh, activities, and for a fee, a monthly fee, Equifax would will send you a report or email you a report. I'm not sure how they do it. But they get a report to you each month telling you whether there's been any suspicious activity on your account. So um, if you're a client of Equifax, what do you have to do? What, what are the fundamentals that you have to do on a monthly basis for a while now to make sure that nobody's screwing around with your information? Well, of course, uh, I, I think if Equifax, if you're a client or not, will, will be monitoring your credit and your profile a little closer. Uh, but as a consumer, here's a couple of things that you can do. Um, you can actually do what we call a credit freeze which means that nobody can actually apply for credit under your profile without X amount of verification. So that's very important for people to know. Most people don't even know about this option, right? Okay. Um, uh, uh, become a forensic expert and check your bank and credit card statements with a tooth comb every single month for every single transaction. The bad guys, uh, you know, again, unfortunately, are very motivated here. So one month you can see a suspicious charge for five or ten dollars that might slip by. The next month you'll see it as a thousand, right? So anything that looks suspicious, pay extra attention to it. Also, alert your bank and strengthen your online password and verification that you do if you're doing online banking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so unfortunately, we still have about close to 48% of users with very simple passwords for their online banking. One, two, three, four. One two three four, or their pop, or their secret question, and what's my pet's name? And all you gotta do is go to Facebook and see that you know, lucky, lucky is a Shih Tzu, and you know what I mean. There's your, there's your password. Yeah. Uh, so you know, just paying a little attention to that, making the password a little bit more complex and something that is not so obvious. Um, and again, I, I will just say this: if you feel that something is happening, report it to the police. And, and as much as law enforcement is overwhelmed with, with lots of uh, what I call digital crimes, it's good for them to have a profile on what just happened because they do inform that the credit company after that you called in and they actually have to file a report. So what should happen to the people who managed Equifax? And what, what, from what we understand, was it two days after the, uh, the breach, uh, various executives of Equifax cashed in $2 million worth of stock? Yeah, so, I mean, Equifax waited six weeks to disclose that sensitive information was breached. Uh, two days uh, after, three executives sold shares worth a combined $1.8 million U.S. Uh, I mean, so this, this What does that speak to, to you? What does that say to you? You know, again, I've seen statements by Equifax, and again, I, I you know, I, I'll take it for face value. They're saying that this is completely irrelevant and so on. Uh, and this executive did not know about the breach. I, I, I personally say that a special committee has to be investigating this particular activity from the government, uh, from the, regula- the regulators, 
because it's almost like saying, you know, the bank just lost all your money and we don't know what happened. Uh, so they're safeguarding this information. Mm. Um, so, I mean, they, somebody has to be responsible and, and a real investigation has to occur and to see what evidence, what actions were taken, what was actually really breached. Uh, I know the Privacy Commissioner here in Canada did not even know about this until they said the media, because they did not report it. Yeah. So, well, if I, was doing, if I was doing the investigating, I'd be checking the hard drives of those particular executives first. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, you know, what's really interesting is Equifax handles about uh, data of more than about 800 million consumers <laughs> and 91 million businesses. So what's interesting to me is I know they're saying that only 134 million records were potentially breached. I would like to see some evidence around that because maybe the number is larger, right? So Could it's, be. Uh, yeah. 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 Daniel, thank you very much for the time. We'll, I'm sure we'll be talking again. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. All the best to you. Daniel right. Tilbach, he's the CEO of Psy Intelligence, Inc. They're out of Toronto. Psy Intelligence, Inc. Psy Intelligence is one word. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Here's a story from, uh, from, from Germany. Well, at German authorities are suggesting that the Islamic State group has more than 11,000 blank Syrian passports and they're, it's the real deal, authentic passports. Uh, the story also suggests there are more than 18,000 of these, and the others are held by various other groups, not intent on exactly just following the rules and migrating to a country and becoming contributing members of society, I would think. Scott Newark, former security advisor to the federal and Ontario governments, post 9-11, the former executive director of the Canadian Police Association, and also a senior policy advisor to a federal minister for public safety. Also a professor now, uh, Professor Professor Newark, good to have you with us. What, what's the university again? Simon Fraser University. Simon SFU, yeah. Yes. Adjunct professor. Scott, what's going on? This is, put, uh, put, this, put, this, uh, put this together for us. Yeah, sure. This is uh, alarming but not surprising. Uh, there are several uh, points out of this. I know uh, we don't have much time, so let me be real quick on it. First of all, this is a reflection of the new reality, if you will, the modernization of the issues involved in the immigration systems around the world. Uh, these guys, ISIS, had actually boasted about this, about infiltrating their people uh, amidst the supposed refugees flooding into uh, Europe. They boasted about it back in uh, 2016, and it's now uh, manifesting itself, such as, as you described in the article, the German uh, uh, intelligence authorities have uh, confirmed. And there's a number of steps that we obviously need to take. Number one, you'll see in the story that it references that it looks as though they've got the serial numbers on the uh, documents themselves, but serial numbers can be altered, and um, I have no idea the extent of the sharing of that information. For example, do Canadian uh, Border Service uh, Agency officials have those uh, that database so that we can detect them? This also illustrates why we're going to need to do something that the Conservatives promised in 2006 and never delivered, and I know because I helped write the, uh, the platform material, we need to deploy a face recognition biometric bad guy lookout system at our border that we share with our Five Eyes partners and the European Union partners, just in case, you know, could, gee, could you imagine maybe they use a phony name? Okay, it is long time since past uh, uh, that we need to actually do that. In Canada in particular, uh, we have really excellent operational uh, work done by CBSA intelligence uh, officials. 
uh, and examples of that are where we're doing, we do a very good job of uh, uh, targeted screening to detect phony uh, uh, visa applicants who are actually coming here to claim refugee status. But one of the biggest challenges, Roy, is you go back to 2010, the government announced what was called the Deficit Reduction Action Plan. It was reducing, significantly reducing spending in government departments and agencies. And CBSA complied with it, but they didn't comply with it as it was intended to cut the bureaucracy. They cut frontline positions. We are, I'm told, down about uh, 1,200 frontline positions, and actually the intelligence uh, people that would be involved in this kind of work are part of the group that was specifically targeted in that. That needs to get fixed, and fixed right away. Um, and this well, is- if we're going to, Scott, if we're going to talk about the seriousness, and, and just illustrate the seriousness of this situation, I'm just looking at one sentence from this news story that you're sh- sharing with us. Members of the group behind a series of coordinated bomb and gun attacks in Paris that claimed 130 lives in November 2015 were found to have used fake Syrian passports. Yes. That's what we're talking about. Yes. And and as I say, that is the new reality that we're facing. We actually have an ideological enemy that is prepared to do whatever it can to get its people into Western societies and launch these domestic terrorism attacks. And so it is time for us to respond to this through this new threat by um, updating and modernizing the way that we handle border security. Mm-hmm. Okay, and because it, because, it's, we, because we should not assume that ISIS is just going to look at these 11,000 blank pack passports and say, gee, that's pretty, let's put them somewhere. No, they're going to use them, of course. Of course they're, they're going to use them. Smart enough they understand that they're a tool to help accomplish their goals. And however irrational their goals may be, we need to be able to respond to it in a way that we're able to detect it. And that's what means that we need to take some action. I mean, it comes at, a, it comes at an interesting and concurrent time, doesn't it, Roy, with the, uh, all of the deficiencies of our uh, border security being mm-hmm. set up with the uh, illegal crime. Well, exactly. Let, let, me, let me just touch on that, because although the vast majority of those are Haitians, so we basically have an understanding who they are, there's a significant number that have been reported that are people that have gotten visas, including from the Middle East, coming into the United States and then directly are crossing the border illegally. Why are they doing that? Because if they wanted to claim refugee status, they could fly into Montreal Airport, where the safe third country doesn't, agreement doesn't apply, and claim refugee status. Might it be that they know that our CBSA officials do a better job of screening, and as a result... They've decided to come into the United States where it's easier, unfortunately, to get a visa and then sneak into Canada. These are the realities we have to confront and we have to face and take action on. And there are things we can do, but it's time to actually start doing them. Well, I'll tell you, it really got my attention uh, when you alerted me to the fact that they have these 11,100. And then there's uh, the others that are some 8,000 more that are God knows who's got those. But uh, they're also out there, Syrian passports, and they could be being used by al-Qaeda or any other organization. These include people who are not just coming here, quote, looking for a better life. No, no, it's not. Time to take action. They're not checking the want ads. They're going on monsterca or .com or whatever it is. Exactly. All right, Scott, thank you so much. It's always great talking to you, the the source of so much information for us. Scott Newark, the former Crown Attorney from uh, Alberta and international security expert, again, who's the... uh, a security advisor for the federal government of Canada and for the government of Ontario following 9-11. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
A survey was conducted on Labor Day weekend, and it shows that Canadians are changing their minds when it comes to adoption, giving new hope to the more than 30,000 children who are waiting to be adopted from foster care in Canada. It's a lot of kids, huh? More than half of Canadians considering adoption for the first time are open to foster care adoption, and two out of three are seriously considering it. The uh, Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, which commissioned the survey, says the numbers represent an impressive jump from five years ago and a continued shift in the attitudes about adopting children in foster care. And Liz Lebrun from Ontario recently adopted two children, both biological siblings, who had never met until Liz adopted them both. I think this is an absolutely fascinating story. And Liz Lebrun joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Liz, uh, thank you very much for taking the time, and uh, tell us about the kids. Hi, well, thanks for having me on the show. Um, My kids are currently 13 and 12, just turned 12, and they are biological siblings, as you said. Um, I adopted Maria eight years ago. She was five years of age at the time of her adoption, and we met her brother, Andy, about a year after she was adopted and we were just having access visits at that time just for the kids to be able to get to know one another and after about three years of visiting with him and seeing that he was still in foster care and had not been adopted at that point uh, it seemed like the right time and i had andy join our family as well and now he's adopted too well congratulations and good for those kids they sound like they have a great mom well, I hope so. <laughs> now, did you know, uh, how early did you know that there were siblings? I knew when I had first um, come across Maria's profile, it was it was um, being presented at the Adoption Resource Exchange, and she was profiled on a, a website that's called Adopt Ontario uh, that works to help find uh, families for kids who are having a difficult time finding permanent placement. Um, and at that time in her profile, it did say that she had a biological sibling who was in foster care and I did see his profile, but because the kids had not met, they weren't looking for a family for the children together. And also I think because both kids had autism, they weren't sure whether or not having both kids in the same home might put too much uh, demand on an adoptive parent or adoptive parents. And how has that turned out uh, for you? I think the way that it happened worked out well. I think it would have been too much to take it on at the same time, but because there was some time in between, I was able to do quite a bit of work with Maria and help her settle in, and then it really was the right timing for Andy to join the family at the time that he did. But now um, it goes quite well with the two of them together. And uh, are they... Are, are they better off? Do, do they are they are they happy that they're together? I mean, brother, sister, clearly, they they would be. How aware are they of their total surroundings, so total circumstances? I think that when they when they met, they were pretty young, so they were four and five at that time. Um, they did know that they were brother and sister. Whether or not they had a full understanding of what that meant, I don't know. Um, I think for them, it was sort of a situation where they were meeting somebody who had a physical appearance that was similar to theirs for the first time. So um, they have a different racial background than I do. So um, neither child looks anything like me. But when they met each other, they could see somebody who who was pretty much a mirror image because they are very similar in their features. Um, and I think they thought that was 
pretty cool. Oh, you're a terrific lady. You're just, I'm just so impressed. Um, do you have other children as well? Uh, we're foster parents as well, so we have we currently have a foster child in the home, and we have fostered in the past. And uh, we have I have two um, stepchildren, so I've married since adopting the kids, and uh, so they've got two step brothers. And we also have um, Andy has a foster, former foster sibling who uh, is also a part of our family, and she's aged out of the foster care system, but she still connects in with our family as her uh, as her sort of home base. It must be interesting times around the LeBron dinner table, then. Yeah, it's a big dinner table. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what is it that... To talk to people who are considering um, fostering children and, and, and people who may be considering also adopting children from foster care, what's the, uh, what, what's the message for, for people listening right now who are thinking, you know, maybe our family's right for this? I think the message is that if you're interested, there will be something that is right for you, and whether... Whether my children would have been the right children for for you to foster or adopt, uh, I don't know because I think every uh, every child sort of has a certain family that that is the right fit for them, and that's definitely the the work that the Dave Thomas Foundation does is looking for a family to fit the child as, as opposed to looking for a child to fit a family. Um, so I think there there will be a situation out there that you can help with regardless of what your circumstances are or where your strengths lie. For me, I had a background in autism, so that was where I was looking. Um, but for other people, they'll have other gifts that they can offer. And um, I think there's sort of something that everybody can do and can bring to a child's life. And I think it's just a matter of working with an agency, getting to know who the children are, who need support, and deciding what would best fit uh, with your home and your lifestyle and where you could give. And you can go to the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption site, and you can find out. I also see a, a video of your kids, but uh, you can you can find out more a lot more information. That's right. There will be lots of information with um, the Dave Thomas Foundation, uh, the Canada website, um, and I would also suggest that people look into uh, the Adoption Council of Ontario and Adopt Ontario. Now, you said that you waited. I think it was three years between. Was it three years between the adoption of your daughter and your son? Uh, yes. Um, would you recommend what would you what would you recommend to people about making sure, being sure, because we're talking about a child's life, mm-hmm. you're coming out of foster care, uh, whether it's a child that has is dealing with a, a disability or not, you're still talking about a child, and a yeah. child who has not experienced uh, what many would consider to be a by the numbers childhood. That's right. Uh, so you have to be sure of what what you're going to be doing. This is not something you do on a whim and then back out, back That's out right. of. So so what what do you say to people about, about being sure, making sure, and making sure that the child and the family are a fit, that when you leave together, you really feel like you belong together? Yeah, I think that you definitely have to do your homework around what you are open to, what you can handle and cope with and what you cannot, because certainly every child brings their own packages and their own strengths and their own challenges, and some are are to a more significant extent than others. Um, I think to get to really know the child's profile, I would say as much as possible before even meeting the child, um, and then once you get to know that child, to sort of take it at a, at a slow pace with, with visiting and um, maybe doing some activities together just to make sure that you really have a handle on what you're um, taking on and how well that works with your, your skill set and your comfort level. 
Um, I, I know for me, a lot of that information came right away when I was starting to learn about the kids' profiles, and I found that the agencies were very honest and upfront about exactly you know what they'd gone through and what their needs were and what the challenges were to make sure that I wasn't walking into anything that I didn't uh, have a chance to prepare for. Do foster parents get enough support? I found I found that our support has been fantastic. Um, I've fostered well, sort of with two different areas because of where my son had come from. Um, but yeah, I found the support to be to be good. I think that um, I think workers have a lot on their plates. I think they're they have you know fairly hefty caseloads and they're trying to juggle a lot and sort of working with a lot of surprises on an ongoing basis with what's on their to do list. Um, but I've found the workers that I've worked with have done a great job making sure that they are connecting and being available and being supportive. Um, I just think it's a busy system. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of needs. And as always, you know, it would be nice to have more resources in every area. But I've always felt nicely supported by our workers. When I've done uh, programs in the past on the issue of foster care, occasionally somebody called and said, well, you have to be, you also have to consider the age of the child and the age of the parents. Uh, how much of a how much of a factor of a factor is the age of the child, or is it more the experience of the child that that should be considered? Because you, you want to you want to have a yeah. home, right? You want to have a home where the child is going to be able to breathe and feel like, yeah, this is my place. Yeah, I think it's probably not as much about age as experience and what their needs are as a result of their experience. Um, you know, I think definitely you have to be sort of comfort, comfortable with whatever developmental stage. So if, if you're looking at bringing a teenager into the home, you're going to have certain challenges that are related to that that person being in that particular stage of life. Um, but I think it's more to do with the individual profile. And I, I always say the same thing for disabilities as well. So if it says on somebody's profile that they have autism or Down syndrome, um, sometimes that's the scare away moment where people look at it and say, oh, no, I don't think I can do that. But everybody with those labels is such an individual, so it would be worth looking past that and just, you know, digging in for a little more information on who that person is as an individual, um, because you know you never know if it if it might be the right fit. And uh, I, I would just say rather than looking at just sort of those um, first statistics that you might get on a child, how old they are, you know, they've been through this, they've been through that, they have this label on them maybe get to know them a little bit more, get to know their profile a little bit more on an individual level. 30,000 kids across this country are in foster mm-hmm. care, and they need to be adopted. Let me ask you this. What is what, what motivated you to become a foster parent initially? I actually was an adoptive parent before I was a foster parent, so my first experience was adopting Maria. Um, and I had always, since I was young, I'd always wanted to adopt a child. And I think the the best recollection I have is my mom talking about um, children that she worked with as a child and youth worker and um, talking at various points about her interest in fostering or adopting, which she didn't do, but she sort of planted the seed with me. And I, you know, I have stories that I have written in, you know, grade six and seven about, you know, what's your life going to be like in the future where I had referenced that I would have adopted children um, because that was always something that was on my radar more so than having biological children. Yeah. Liz, uh, it was a real pleasure to speak with you, and I just remembered um, several times I've watched a television show or a segment on, on TV. Often it has to do with sports, and you'll find there's a great athlete, and a great professional athlete or a global athlete, somebody who 
as sort of a world leader. And then you find out that this athlete was adopted. So the interviewer inevitably and invariably asks the uh, athlete or the, the famous person about being adopted. And the wonderful things they say about their adoptive family are just yeah. heartwarming. It's just, you know, it's just like they didn't, when they were adopted, nobody knew that we were going to be adopting a superstar. That's right. <laughs> you were just adopting a great kid or a good kid or a That's kid right. you wanted. And then it yeah. turned out to this wonderful story and the, and, and the giving and the, and the caring between the two. It's just remarkable to see. It is. It is. It works both ways, too, because I think with my kids, what they've brought to me has been probably 10 times what I've brought to them in terms of my learning and the way I've learned to just look at the world and what to appreciate and uh, and other people they've brought into my life as well. As I said, we have a big we have a big table. And a lot of that is because, you know, through adopting one child, it's brought a whole lot more people into our life. You're a remarkable lady. Thank you so much for uh, spending the time with us. Thanks again for your focus on adoption. We all appreciate that. You know, Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Liz LeBrun joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Corliss Radio Network. You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Tomorrow is the uh, 16th anniversary of 9-11. And it's also a national day of service in Canada. It's an initiative of Maureen Basnicki, whose husband Ken was murdered at the World Trade Center on 9-11. Maureen is a friend of mine and an amazing woman who battles for the memory of the victims of 9-11 to be honored. Remember, Mr. Chrétien refused a memorial for the Canadian victims of the terrorist murders. He said, can't have memorials for everyone. But September the 11th is also the National Day of Service. And I received this email from Maureen this morning. And uh, she wrote, um, uh, September 11th, National Day of Service and Remembrance is a day when Canadians can engage in small acts of kindness and show a generosity of spirit in honor of the victims of terror, their families, and the men and the women who serve our country and communities every day. It's also a day to remember the courage and compassion in the aftermath of 9-11 and rekindle the spirit of kindness and goodwill that unified our country and demonstrated our strong friendship with our American neighbors. Engaging in service on and around 9-11 is an appropriate and respectful way to remember the lives of those lost Pay tribute to those who rose in service and honor those who continue to serve our country today. So on behalf of all those touched by terror, the force of evil, and those affected by the force of nature, forest fires, hurricanes, earthquakes, flooding, and all the other natural disasters, please think about the victims, their families, and those who chose to protect us. I urge you to do something for a stranger or someone in need, a small pay-it-forward act to show you care. I also invite you to go to the CNDS Foundation to donate to one of the national charities listed, or choose your favorite charity to make a donation. A gentle reminder to our students who must complete so many hours to community service. Choose and pledge your service commitment now. That's from Maureen Basnicki. And uh, that family has uh, has suffered so much and done so much. I remember at the uh, very beginning speaking to Erica, Maureen's daughter, right after 9-11, and Erica was just an incredibly eloquent young woman who spoke about her dad, who spoke about the the uh, fact of 9-11 and what we need going forward, all of us. And on the anniversary, the first anniversary of 9-11, we went to uh, New York, Chorus Radio, and we broadcast live. We, um, we rented the studios at WOR, and it was an amazing program insofar as we had such great people 
participating. And it, it had a sense that something very positive was going to come out of all of this negativity and terror. And that uh, National Day of Service is one way to create positivity and to make something significant happen. Thank you, Maureen, for the uh, for the email, and thank you for all you do for for Canadians. National Day of Service. Just pay it forward. Do something for somebody. Uh, look at a, a charity uh, and provide them with some support. Or maybe, as we just spoke with Liz LeBrun, maybe it's time for your family to uh, become a foster family or take in a child and, and, and adopt a child. Just things to consider. We all uh, know exactly where we were 16 years ago tomorrow morning when we heard the news. We all remember that. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.